0: This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. In this episode we're going to talk about the transfiguration, a very strange story in the gospel with a very clear message. and The message is nothing less than the purpose and goal of our lives, which Christ came from among us to show us. I'm going to read the version from Luke, but this week I have Matthew, Mark, and Luke to choose from because each of the gospel writers thought that this was an important story to tell, and the church thinks it's so important that it's said on the second sunday of lent each year you get each of the versions if you wait through three years but also on the feast of the transfiguration every august so here's the transfiguration of jesus from luke and i'll pick up right before it starts truly i say to you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of god about eight days later after he said this. He took peter john and james and went up the mountain to pray while he was praying his face changed in appearance and his clothing became dazzling white and behold two men were conversing with him moses and elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus that he was going to accomplish in jerusalem peter and his companions had been overcome by sleep but becoming fully awake they saw His glory and the two men standing with Him. As they were about to part from Him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But he did not know what he was saying. While he was still speaking, a cloud came and cast a shadow over them, and they became frightened when they entered the cloud. Then. From the cloud came a voice that said, "'This is my chosen Son. Listen to him." After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They fell silent and did not, at that time, tell anyone what they had seen. First of all, I love how this begins. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, Jesus says. There's people who jump all over this and say, Look, look, they expected Jesus to come back right away. They expected that some people present would uh, not die before the second coming. But they ignore what it actually says here next in the Gospel of Luke. About eight days after he said this, he took Peter, John, and James and went up the mountain to pray with a dazzling, glowing vision that followed. Clearly, these are people who saw the kingdom of God before they died. So let's recognize that to start with. But then we have to ask, what are we to make of this wild and crazy story about a glowing Jesus hanging out with other glowing figures from heaven? There's a brilliant C.S. Lewis essay called Transposition that captures this. A student recently brought it to my attention. You remember back in season one, I talked about Plato's cave and the light of Christ, and about how Plato spoke about living in a world of shadows and then emerging into the light, the way we experience the light of Christ. Well. To borrow C.S. Lewis's idea of transposition, imagine a child who lives in a cave with her father. He had lived outside, so to tell her about the world outside the cave, the father draws pictures for her, line drawings done with paper and black pen. He can only transpose what he's seen, he can only draw the beautiful colors and three dimensional reality using black and white and two dimensions. And let's say he's a great artist, he does a great job with rivers and trees showing perspective and rabbits and the sun. But what would the child understand, even from the best-case scenario lying drawings, about the real world? She would have a true idea of what it looks like, but a totally inadequate idea of what it looks like. If she ever did get a glimpse of the outside world, all the drawings would have only prepared her for the full vision which would be totally different from the two dimensions of the paper she had seen. That's the predicament we are in with God. God exists outside of time and space, above it, underneath it, and all around it, or inside it, all prepositions fail with God. But we see Him only in three dimensions now, four dimensions if you count time. As St. Paul says, at present we see indistinctly, as in a mirror, but then face to face, at present I know partially, Then I shall know fully, as I am fully known. But there are times when God breaks into our world and we see him. There are extraordinary ones like the Transfiguration story, which we will talk about. This is God using our senses to convey who he is to us. Neither I nor anyone I know has seen a glowing Jesus hanging out with the Old Testament greats, but some people I know have experienced at least a little bit of what this must have been like. My wife had an experience at her first communion when she was a little girl that changed her life. When the priest said the consecration prayer at her first communion, the host glowed and lit up the church. When he consecrated the chalice, the glow rose from there too. When she talked to people about it afterwards, they had no idea what she was saying, and so she realized she had to stop talking about it. I also have a friend, a very rational guy, not given to wild visions at all who saw the sun move mysteriously in the sky at a Marian shrine. These experiences touched both of them the same way. They remain faithful to God to this day. This is how visions have worked throughout history. My favorite example of this phenomenon is Mother Teresa. Early in her life as a nun, she had a year of intense knowledge of Jesus. She experienced both seeing him and hearing his voice frequently that year. Then for decades afterward, Until she died, she had no consolation from Jesus at all. She never saw or heard Him or even felt Him. But the memory of her time with Him sustained her so much that she was known for her smile, and she was called the Apostle of Joy. So those are visual, sensory experiences. I had an experience that I want to mention in this context that did not involve my senses. It was in Port Meadow in Oxford, England, and it too has sustained me for years, but it wasn't as clear as a glowing host or a dancing sun or the voice of Christ. I was walking through Port Meadow at dusk, and I was saying the Glory Be prayer for some reason, and I remember being suddenly overwhelmed with the truth of it, as if I had seen a vision, but without having seen a vision. I prayed Glory Be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, and I became almost breathless as I continued. As it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever. I felt the full force of the beauty, truth, and goodness of that, like I glimpsed the place outside of time where God dwells in unutterable majesty. It's the same kind of experience short story author Flannery O'Connor described once as a vision of souls marching to heaven where you could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. We all live part way outside of time, We're all part angel, part beast, so our lives are going to be a little wild and crazy at times, and the gospel is wild and crazy here because life is wild and crazy. If God exists, and he does, and if he lives outside of time and space, and he does, and if he wants to talk to us, and he does, then he has to find a way to do it that we can understand. That means he has to do it in our language, and that's going to look wild and crazy to us. You also might think that if these experiences are important, everyone ought to have them. And I think we do. But they usually happen in a no less magical, but much more ordinary way, nostalgia. When we remember the past with nostalgia, we romanticize it precisely by remembering only the core of an experience we had. We remember the campfire we were at with our loved ones. We remember singing and feeling at one with the universe. We don't remember our bad breath, bad singing, and aches and pains. We remember the coziness of the fire, but not the cold of the night. We remember our unity with our fellow man, but not the irritation we felt and the tensions we had with one or two of them. Our nostalgic memory strips the experience of everything, but what was true and good and beautiful in that past experience and connects it with what we hope for our future. Christmas is perhaps the best approximation of that experience available on earth. At Christmas, joy beautifully blends nostalgia from the past, delight at the present, and hope for the future into one experience. When we sit in front of the fireplace and gaze at the Christmas tree, we can feel the us from our childhood and the us from our old age there with us. Or maybe we feel ourselves in both places at once, as we will be one day. Heaven will be a heightened, pure version of the same thing as time collapses into a bright, single unity. It's interesting how often nostalgia involves light, firelight, candlelight, Christmas lights. And the transfiguration involves light, too, because light is a perfect metaphor for God. Light is the thing which fills darkness without ever lessening itself in any one place. And so light shows up throughout the Bible. God is the flaming urn of Abraham, the burning bush of Moses, the pillar of fire in the desert, Elijah's chariot and the Son of Man in the furnace. God is not really fire, but apparently fire shows us a truth about God. It's a transposition. A transposition, just as when you read a written word out loud, the word is both ink and sound waves that carry it, and vibrations it makes on your vocal cords and vibrations it makes on someone's eardrums and the thought that is in your mind and the thought that is in their mind, as well as the thing it represents in the world. They all mean the same thing in the same way, but they are very different things. The word tree is not a tree. A sound wave is not a tree. A thought is not a tree. And yet they all say tree and mean something real. There are many divine transpositions in history, God asserting his presence in the maze like a father poking his head in a crib, appearing as something remarkable that our baby brains can barely grasp. This one comes at the turning point in the Gospel story. Just before this, we have heard Jesus revealing increasingly hard to accept facts about his mission and plans. Not only does he say he will be killed, but he says that his disciples will each have to take up his cross and follow. The undeniable implication is that we will be crucified just like him. That's a lot to stomach, and the apostles only barely stomach it. Then Jesus took Peter, James, and John his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. On the mountain he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Then Moses and Elijah appeared, conversing with Jesus. You can imagine the apostles talking about it later. Wait, did you see what I saw? They would ask. St. Peter remembered one novelistic detail reported here as it is in the Gospel of Mark by his secretary, Mark. Peter offers to build three tents, tabernacles, for the three figures. Peter, James, and John also couldn't forget the voice saying, "'This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him.'" The gospel says they all heard it. They fell prostrate in fear, only to be taken in hand by Jesus after the vision was gone, as he said, "'Rise, and do not be afraid.'" The apostles would know exactly what Jesus appearing in this way, in this company, means. In the book of Daniel, which, as I have mentioned, was enormously popular in Jesus' time, Daniel prophesies that, quote, the wise shall brightly shine like the splendor of the firmament, and those who lead the many to justice shall be like the stars forever, end quote. And here they see Moses and Elijah, the two prophets who had encounters with God, standing before them on Mount Tabor, reflecting the glow of Jesus, who is shining like a star. Jesus here is just like Daniel describes him, quote, one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. Thousands upon thousands were ministering to him, and myriads upon myriads attended him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not be taken away. Quote. If thou that sounds like a cleverly devised myth, St. Peter reassures us it is not. He would later write in one of his New Testament letters, We do not follow cleverly devised myths, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, we ourselves heard his voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain." John wrote about this later, also—well, he wrote about a later vision like it. Early on in the book of Revelation, John describes how he saw Jesus himself visit him. Here's how he looked, quote, Like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden girdle round his breast. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow his eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, end quote. Which makes the next words perfectly understandable. He wrote, when I saw him, I felt at his feet as though dead. And then Jesus bent down and revived him with a word, just like he had done for John and James and Peter on Mount Tabor. So what is this transposition of God showing us? The apostles here are witnessing the glory of jesus christ who is god and man but from this we can also learn the true glory of human beings who are at once both body and soul and are immortal and meant to shine like the stars one day after all there are moses and elijah mere humans with jesus aglow saint thomas says there's more Quote, at his transfiguration christ showed his disciples the splendor of his beauty to which he will shape and color those who are his. He will reform the body of our lowness, configured to the body of his glory." So we're going to look like that. I like that this vision shows that Jesus Christ is not just a bigger, better version of Aristotle's prime mover, but a bigger, better version of Zeus. As one theologian here at Benedictine College has put it, We 21st century Western Catholics are quick to see the truth of the god of Aristotle, the prime mover, the ancient philosopher who reasons his way to God, and rightly so. But we have been less willing to see in him the thundering Zeus of Homer, because Zeus is immoral and untrustworthy. Obviously, the Lord God of hosts is far from the Zeus of poetry, but he is also far from being merely the final cause of philosophy. Maybe we believe in Aristotle's God because he is safe, and we don't want to believe in Homer's gods because they are not. Okay, let me be straight here. I don't mean to say that we should believe in Homer's gods, but as Dr. Aaron Riches put it, the all-too-human Homeric gods quote, point gropingly to our human need to see God in the flesh. But Zeus and his pantheon ultimately just are not either God enough or human enough for us end quote. Jesus, fully God and fully man, is the fulfillment of what both the Old Testament and the Iliad long for, and that means he's neither tame nor predictable. The year before Father Michael Schmitz's podcast, my friend Peter Wolfgang and his wife Leslie read the Augustine Institute's Bible in a Year together. Leslie read it first, Peter said, and quote, Leslie would write, God doesn't do that in the margins every time God did something that modern Christianity tells us he doesn't do. But God does do that. There are sections of the Bible where he seems to do that on every other page, end quote. In Everlasting Man, G.K. Chesterton addressed the popular complaint that the church has taken the loving teacher Jesus and twisted his message of peace into a message threatening fire and brimstone. That understanding is, quote, very nearly the reverse of the truth. The truth is that it is the image of Christ in the churches that is almost entirely mild and merciful. It is the image of Christ in the Gospels that is a good many other things as well. Aslan is the Christ figure in C.S. Lewis's Narnia. A character sums him up as not safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe but he's good. He's the king, I tell you." In the Transfiguration, Jesus is the unexpected face of the unsafe God. He stands before us like a character in a pagan myth who swallowed the sun. Or, better, he is the light from light who existed before the sun. And unlike the myths, this is a God who wants to know us, a Zeus who comes to serve, and a prime minister who is demanding in ways that defy logic. Anyway, there Jesus is with Moses and Elijah, lit up. So, why do these particular figures show up with him? There could be a very practical reason. First, since the Pharisees had called Jesus a lawbreaker so often, it's very helpful for Moses to show up and give him his approbation. And also, since people thought Jesus was Elijah the prophet himself, kind of helps to have Elijah show up and talk to him to show that they're not the same person? End of confusion. That's true, I think, but there's more. When something this extraordinary happens in the Bible, when two specific characters emerge from the pages of the Old Testament to chat with Jesus as we will see him at the end of time, it is crucial to figure out why. It would be like an American seeing Washington and Lincoln appearing today in the glow of a resurrected Jesus, only that would be less significant, because these two are far greater. For one thing, both these two men had theophanies, encounters with God on mountaintops, both on Mount Sinai, as it happens. They have both been seen glowing, too. Moses' face glowed after he conversed with God. And Elijah was last seen exiting earth in a chariot of fire. But also, Moses was the man who led Israel on an exodus from slavery and gave them the law of life. Elijah repeated the exodus in miniature on Mount Carmel when he defeated the priests of Baal. Moses was the man who led everyone to the Promised Land. Elijah disappeared into a new heavenly Promised Land in his chariot of fire. Moses assembled and blessed the twelve tribes of Israel. Elijah was expected to restore the tribes of Israel one day. But Jesus has to correct a misimpression that the apostles have. In Jesus' time, it was widely expected that the prophet Elijah, who departed the earth in a chariot of fire, would return the same way. As we have pointed out a couple of times, they were expecting him to pop up anywhere. This comes from Deuteronomy, when Israel promised, The Lord your God will raise you up a prophet like me from among you, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak all that I command him. So they were expecting this prophet to come, and they often associated it with Elijah, because of that chariot. In fact, this expectation was fulfilled in the voice crying out in the wilderness, John the Baptist. Zechariah prophesied in the Gospel of Luke everything that would come from his son, John. You, my child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. Jesus wants to quash the rumors that he is himself Elijah, not only because he is not Elijah, but because his plan is totally different from Elijah's. Elijah called down fire on his opponents. Jesus won't do that. He will, in fact, tell James and John not to do that later. Elijah fled his death when his life was threatened and slayed his rival priests. Jesus will march directly into his death at the hands of rival priests. Elijah left in glory. Jesus' forerunner, the new Elijah, John the Baptist, left not in glory but with his head separated from his shoulders by a petty king. For us, it is not the destruction of our opponents that makes us free but the destruction of our selfish desires that make us free. That's because what is happening here is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament covenants. Continuing with what Zechariah said, not just about his son, but about Jesus, he said, quote, He has raised up for us a mighty Savior, born of the house of his servant, David. Through his holy prophets he promised of old that he would save us from the hands of all who hate us. He promised to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. This was the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to set us free from the hands of our enemies, free to worship him without fear, holy and righteous in his sight all the days of our life. God will remember his holy covenant, says Zechariah. A covenant is more than a contract. A covenant creates a bond. Zechariah calls all of these promises to Abraham, to David, and the rest, one covenant. In fact, testament means covenant. So The Old Testament he's seen as a covenant, which God compares to a marriage in the book of Hosea, a marriage to which Israel has been unfaithful as an unfaithful bride. Now, it's as if God is tired of his people failing to keep the covenant, and so he sighs and says, I'll do it. Think of Abraham's covenant. It matches the primitive mode of discourse of the time. An animal is split in two, and two parties pass between the two halves. It was understood what they were promising. If I fail in this agreement, may the fate of these animals fall on me. Significantly, in the theophany of Abraham, God symbolically passes between the animals, not Moses. This shows God having the initiative in the covenant. God is reaching out to us, not the other way around. But then, when it becomes obvious to us that we will fail the covenant, Jesus comes just in the nick of time to fulfill it for us. He dies like a bird or an animal sacrifice and gives us the grace promised in the covenant. In his one sacrifice for all times, he fulfills every covenant. We see it every time we go to Mass, where Jesus is separated on the altar, his body and blood put before us in the Eucharist, and then calls forward to claim us as his own in communion. Another covenant sign is circumcision, which Jesus received on the eighth day. Another covenant sign is the Passover lamb, and Jesus becomes the lamb of God sacrificed for us. After Jesus, the covenant is not a quid pro quo arrangement where man gives allegiance to God and God repays that allegiance. It's sheer gratuity on God's part. Man doesn't have to earn it. Jesus came and did that for us. We merely have to live such that we don't reject it. This new covenant is a new exodus. Moses and Elijah spoke to Jesus of his exodus, which he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. That exodus is the passion, death and resurrection, and it is exactly the journey we are on with him right now. The original exodus took the Israelites away from slavery to Egypt and the curse of death through the desert of suffering and the Ten Commandments. Ours takes us away from slavery to the world to God's new commandment of love through prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. But an exodus is not easy. Seeing who Christ is really transforms us. The Psalms pray, "'It is your face, O Lord, that I seek. Hide not your face from me.'" St. Peter and St. Paul went to their deaths for Jesus because they had seen his face. They knew him and had experienced his transfigured appearance. We are meant to have the same experience with the same result. Jesus pouring forth light made them certain that he was worth giving everything they owned, every day they were granted, all their honor and identity, and in the end to sacrifice their very lives for him, not for themselves. Seeing Jesus transfigured made them realize that they were meant to launch the restoration of the covenant promises of God in the Church. If Christ's transfiguration is meant to give us a foretaste of who we will be, as St. Thomas Aquinas says, then we are truly great. I think I've quoted this before, but the priest-poet Gerard Manley Hopkins talks about our greatness this way. He says, "O oh, the mind! Mind has mountains, cliffs of fall, frightful sheer, no man fathomed. Hold them cheap, may who ne'er hung there." End quote. Any soul that was made in the image and likeness of God is immense and worthy of our serious attention. Gazing into our soul is like gazing into a mountain vista. There are real depths and heights there. But this is precisely why care for our soul is so important and so difficult. The gospel this Sunday hints at a way through. First, it shows Jesus at his transfiguration visited by Moses and Elijah. These two figures are appropriate, says St. John Chrysostom. They both spoke on behalf of the faithless. They both faced down tyrants. They both led people away from idolatry and neither was eloquent and both were poor. In other words, they both saw the dangers of our very time and our very place, and they both saw the true importance and grandeur of each human person and responded with extreme humility. We are invited to do the same. As Peter put it, You will do well to be attentive as to a lamp shining in a dark place until day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Listen to the light until the light fills us until we ourselves are transfigured into light. When will that happen? It will happen when we are citizens of heaven. St. Paul says it this way, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we also await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will change our lowly bodies to conform with His glorified body. I observed this phenomenon in two different crowds I saw recently. One was a group at a recent conference I attended of the Institute for Religious Life. The other was the crowd watching the Academy Awards on TV. The Oscars crowd was made up of the cream of the crop of famous, beautiful people. People who spend a lot of money on clothing, fitness, plastic surgery to look their best. The Institute crowd was a collection of unknown nuns, brothers, and priests whose physical characteristics and manners of dress would have looked shabby next to the Hollywood crowd. But the religious conference crowd looked transfigured. Their eyes sparkled, they seemed eager to love, and even the ones the world would call unattractive were beautiful. Their smiles filled you with warmth and inspired you by how gentle yet unyielding in their commitments they were. We can all be more like that, starting right now. Which brings me back to season one, when Jesus began his public ministry. After Christ's baptism, the Father's voice declared, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It was as if this affirmation from the Father gave Christ the strength to fast and withstand temptation. Now, after being transfigured, the Father's voice makes the same declaration. But both affirmations are meant for us, too. He's well pleased in us, and the final victory of citizenship in heaven will be an eternity of basking in his delight with us. Christ's Transfiguration is meant to give us an early hint of that, and encourage us for the difficult things ahead. As St. Gregory the Great put it, "...anyone who is determined to reach the destination is not deterred by the roughness of the road that leads to it." The more faith you have in where you are going, the more determined you will be to get there. The less faith you have, the more you stop and play with lesser things than what you were made for. Usually, Christ delivers more faith by appearing to us in ordinary ways to show us that God really did become one of us, just like us. Here we are reminded that he was never just one of us, just like us. He is always also something totally other, disguised as he moves among us. And only in his life do we find our own depths. Our ordinary stories find their glowing destination in his extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story. Visit us at benedictine.edu.